Hello, and welcome to the Uneasy Terrain Explorers Club podcast, the place where curiosity is welcomed and no topic is too taboo to tread. I'm your host, Jonathan Doe, and today I have something really special to share with you guys. So if you've been following this podcast since the beginning, you'll recall that back in 2019, I did an interview with Stephen Byro and Marcus Cook on the American Guinea Pig series. Well, that same year, I also conducted an interview with Jessica Cameron, star of the American guinea pig entry, The Song of Solomon. Unfortunately, I thought I had lost the audio file to that interview, and I thought it was gone forever. But going through an old computer, I just discovered that I have a backup copy of it, which is amazing because I had such a great time hanging out with Jessica and talking with her about her career. This is one of my favorite interviews, and I'm glad that I can finally share it with all of you now. So without any further ado, here's my 2019 pre-COVID interview with Jessica Cameron. Uh, hey everybody, I'm here uh, with Jessica Cameron from the Song of Solomon film. She's an actor, she's a director, she runs the Small Town Girl production company, and um, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you? Pretty good. Um, so I kind of want to talk a little bit about, <clears throat> a little bit about your past and, and you grew up in Ontario, Canada, and started out as a clothing designer. What was it that got you interested in working in the film industry? So, fun facts. I, As a child, I was really interested in it, but I thought all the actors had to have perfect teeth. You know, like Circa, Christina Ricci, and Thora Birch, and Gabby Hoffman. So, I kind of dismissed it. And then, when I, I went to school for fashion design, and was lucky to get a job right out of college, uh, where I went to go work for a major company. And within the first quarter, the first three months, I had my first review and they liked my work. They just didn't like how I spoke. So they felt I spoke too quickly, essentially. And they told me I had to fix that problem by taking some kind of class. Um, and there wasn't speech classes. They are not a real thing. <laughs> <laughs> so my immediate boss, who thought it was ridiculous, but it came from her boss's boss, had this idea where she's like, take an acting class, talk slowly around the stupid people. We'll convince them it's working. The mm -hmm. whole thing is dumb. So that's what we did. And I just fell in love with acting. And then because it was in Ohio, I happened to be in basically a really strong hob hobbyist sort of horror market where most of the things that they were filming were genre films. So I took classes for several years um, and then progressed to the point where I had taken every class within driving distance and like all the neighboring, uh, all the neighboring areas. And my teachers were like, you're good. You should just start doing this. And I was like, I don't really want a part-time job. Like, not my thing. I do really like just doing this as like a passion. And then I do my fashion as income. Well, turns out that there was just like no more classes to take. So I found myself in a corner of having to be able to start auditioning. I auditioned for The Dead Batter, uh, where I booked the role in the room. And it was a really wonderful experience. And then I just started auditioning more and more. And it happened to be because it was like this hobbyist horror market that most of what I was going out for was genre features. So for pardon me, for me, that was like a blessing because it's my favorite movies to watch. So it just sort of lucked out that I happened to start working in horror. Mm -hmm. Although if I could have picked any genre, it would have been horror hands down. And now having done like so many, all of the genres, um, still focusing mostly on horror, I can tell you that like horror sets are the most fun because people there treat it like a passion, not just work versus like comedy and drama. You get some of the, the crew members and stuff who are perfectly good at their job, but it's not their livelihood as opposed to on a horror set. Typically everybody there would rather be nowhere else. Like that's where they want to live their life. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, being a fan of, of horror and then getting into the, the acting career, were there any particular films or actors that were like inspirations to you and in, in the kind of work that you were going for? You know, I have always really resonated with uh, Jamie Curtis. And I know that's sort of a stereotypical answer, but one of the things that I've always loved and admired about her is her ability to do a wide variety of roles in various genres and also to maintain some, some semblance of privacy in her personal life, her ability to sort of do financially viable jobs without sort of being considered a sellout. Like look at, you know, Viactive Yogurt. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't hear people trash talking her. She's selective about it, but she does do things that also can earn her money. And I like the fact that she really follows her heart. So I know at one point she wanted to write children's books and do a bunch of other things. So she went down there and did that. Um, 
I think she's got a really great head on her shoulders and I also really appreciate how she handles her fans um, which is something that the older I get and the more entrenched in this world that I have I'm seeing more and more of people that kind of treat fans like shit they don't like it um, I think it's stupid like especially when you wouldn't have a career because of them the fact that some feel the need to belittle or treat the fans like lesser than really bothers me. Mm -hmm. So I love the fact that she's always been the kindest, sweetest, nicest person to everyone, regardless of who they are. That's awesome. Um, so looking back at your filmography and some of the earlier works that you were in, um, some of them that stand out to me are Silent Night and Camel Spiders. Um, what of those early films that you were in do you think really helped you grow as an actor and, and the work that you did and ultimately push you into the director's chair? You know, I have fond memories from both of the films that you mentioned. It's funny, when you do independent films, you typically end up doing a lot more than most people ever realize because so many of them don't get out. You know, I think I have over 80 films on my IMDb. There's at least 50 more that I've been involved with that are not listed. And of the ones listed and unlisted, 90% of them don't get finished or released. <laughs> uh, so that being said, anytime a movie comes out, it's like a nice, ah, oh, yes, congratulations to everybody involved moment. Camel Spiders was really interesting. I learned a lot of things, including to always keep track of your contracts. Uh, so Camel Spiders was a SAG film, a low-budget SAG film that I shot for a day. Um, we shot 28 pages of dialogue and action in one 17 hour day um, that we were paid $100 on with Jim Norsky and Bill Dever out of Indiana. Um, they didn't give us a hotel. <laughs> we did not have craft services or any kind of anything. We were given one meal and then we would tag team out various actors to like leave the set to get liquids because it was really, really hot. It was a very long, hot day and we were shooting like 17 hours. So we'd literally be like, rock, paper, scissors. Okay, you go, and we'll just make up an excuse if, like, they call for you. Because we just needed, like, you know, water and stuff. Yeah. Pretty simple. Um, that being said, it was a wonderful experience. The group of actors I worked with was really, really great. Um, Jim Wynorski is a legend, completely. Everything you've ever heard about Jim is completely true. Um, I actually really liked working with Jim, but I also am somebody who is not precious to somebody taking out their frustrations on me. I think that one of my colleagues had a much harder time with Jim, uh, and I almost feel like he kind of picked on her more because of it. He was almost feeding off of it. Um, but Jim is, like, very abrupt. So there's no, like, oh, okay, that was fine, let's try it another way. He's very much like, that was horrible, you're a shitty fucking actor, don't fuck it up again. You Damn. know, like, very direct. And I think some people don't like that. I'm fine with it. Like, I don't care. Tell me what you need from me, and I'm going to do my best. Okay, cool. You hated it. That means I'm going to do something totally different. <laughs> um, so, so it was a really interesting experience to work with him. At one point, I had walked up to him at lunch, the one meal that we had, and I wanted to just thank him. So I hadn't met him, by the way, up until then. We literally showed up, I think, 7.30. It was a really early day. It went really late. Um, I was hired by the producer. So at no point had I discussed with Jim. We were also given the script the night before. So, and I knew most of the actors that I was working with. Uh, so like at one point, like one of my fellow actors called me at like literally a half hour after he got the script and he was like, I am panicking. Like, how are we going to memorize 27 pages of action dialogue? And I was like, we have to be on set in 10 hours. And most of us have a three and a half hour drive. You don't. Like, don't even worry about it at this point. Like, literally, go to bed, focus on waking up, getting to set on time. But, like, they sent us the script literally 11 hours before call time, knowing that we all drove. I think, like, the farthest somebody came from was, like, four and a half hours away. I was three and a half hours away. It is what it is. Just print it out. Bring it with you. <laughs> like, and we're going to do the best that we can. Because yeah. at the end of the day, we can't. Uh, so I learned that. That being said, like, although I'm saying like some of like the most difficult parts, it was also just wonderful because I got to work with some really great people. Like I said, I really liked working with Jim, um, where I also learned, like I referenced the contract. So it turns out sci-fi would then later acquire the film mm -hmm. where they would play it every single week for like five years. Well, guess what happens when you don't have a contract and when they don't file it? I get no residuals. And when I tried to get a lawyer or a SAG involved, they're like, where's the contract? I was like, I don't know. It, I signed it like seven years ago. 
Like, why does it fall on me to keep it? But turns out it does. Um, so legally I should have been entitled to a pretty hefty <laughs> residual check that I never got. Cause again, I'm the lead in a second storyline that's literally 28 pages. Like, so it's not like I'm in like a two minute scene, you know, I'm literally in a third of the movie and got paid a hundred dollars. So that being said, no shade, no tea. I still had a great time working with all of the people involved. Uh, but it was definitely a good learning curve to be like, okay, don't do that again. Also, try not to take a job where it's like 28 pages of action and dialogue in one long day. Because that's going to be really, really, really difficult. Yeah, but it also, like, not that I condone how Jim Wynorski speaks to actors, but I can definitely see, like, why he's so short and direct, but he's not taking the 35 minutes other directors would take to bring out that performance. He's like, no, we got to go. Like, we've got 28 pages to shoot today. Like, that was horrible. Do better. You know, um, so I can really respect that level of hustle. Uh, and I myself, as a filmmaker, I don't think I could ever physically possibly shoot 28 pages of action and dialogue. And if you see the movie, like, it's all over the... Like, again, like, we're in, we're in houses, we're running down the street, we're outside, we're by a river. Like, it's not like it's all, like, set in one location. Mm-hmm. Like, at one point, too, like, we were, they had scouted, and they were in Indiana, they had, they found, like, the perfect, like, house for us to, like, look like we were running into, so we weren't actually gonna run in the house, we were just gonna look like we were, so we were gonna go up on the front porch, and it looked like it was abandoned, well, guess who showed up? <laughs> the <laughs> owner with a shotgun. Oh so, my God. uh, it was, it was, nobody was living there, but he did own the property, and he did not like a bunch of, uh, filmmaker people near his property, and he just camped out like down the street it was literally like if you go near my property i'm gonna shoot you <laughs> uh so needless to say we had to find another house and it being indiana they found this beautiful house it was a sunday so there was a family who had just gone back from church and they jim knocked on the door and i i did tell them this uh they came and he was like we're shooting a movie we need a house that we can like run into and run out of we'll give you a credit and he even offered to like rent like to give them cash and they're like oh no this is just so nifty absolutely not it was like a clown car it was a big house but like so many people just kept coming out of the house because they had to like leave the house so we could, like, we have like this whole family who like we interrupt their sunday brunch to like just these people they don't know they've never met because they think it's cool and yeah and they let us run mud through their entire house because it was like had rained the night before and they were the nicest people ever and the woman would not accept money and i was like oh dear you don't know who Jim Wynorski is. I'm going to tell you, if that man offers you money, you take it. Because he never offers money to anyone. <laughs> like, take it if not for... There's the amount of people that would wish they had been offered money by this man. Like, just take it. But they wouldn't. Uh, and they were just so kind and so lovely. Uh, and that's, like, the house that we use in the film. That's like, awesome. the car that, in the end, is my car. <laughs> like, it's independent filmmaking. Uh, and I still can't tell you if I live or die. People ask that all the time. They're like, did you live? I was like, I have no idea. Your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> uh, back when Anchor Bay Canada was still a thing, I was hoping... Oh, there's my dog. He's barking. Um, I was hoping that uh, I could make, like, an unofficial sequel because I thought it could be really funny. Uh, but then it just never came around, so... <laughs> but yeah, get your contracts. Uh, keep them. Store them. File them. And if Jim Minorski offers you money, take it. Well, that's pretty wild that they let you use their house. Mm-hmm. Um, never knew them before or since. And it was a really nice house, too. I was like, you guys are very trustworthy, trusting people. Like, you have a lot of nice stuff in here that we could break or steal. <laughs> like, not that we did. Do you know, if, you they, know what I mean? if they know that they, nope. their house is in that movie? Nope. I mean, I assume that they, I assume that they know it is. Like, because they agreed for it to be in the movie. They had them sign a waiver. And I think for most people, like, who don't know independent filmmaking... Mm -hmm if you just walk up to a normal person like hey can i put your house in a movie they just assume the movie's gonna happen it's gonna get finished and released right like they don't realize like there's like an 85 percent chance it'll die yeah <laughs> right because like most people like you know accountants don't accountant for 85 percent of the time right like yeah. like they actually go to work and they actually they file 100 percent of the taxes they prepare <laughs> doctors see and file the paperwork on 100 percent of patients that they see you know uh, filmmaking, independent filmmaking specifically is kind of the anomaly where it's like sometimes it just doesn't happen. Surprise. Uh, so I have to assume that they, that they assume it is, yeah. Yeah. Um, so in 2013 you had your directorial debut with Truth or Dare and um, I wanted to ask what was it like switching from 
actor to director, and I know that you acted in that film as well, so that's kind of a, you're playing two different roles at the same time within that film. Um, with your experience that you had uh, as an actor, how did that play a role in you being a director and then also juggling both those roles? How was that? Okay, so to, so I didn't want to direct the movie. I came up with the original concept and I co-wrote it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wanted to hire a director. And I made a short list. We had a small investment to make the movie that I ignorantly thought I could make the movie for. Um, I literally just like picked a number, uh, which I think most people do. Uh, what I will say is I did learn from that and haven't done it since. But I still see, like, I still hear, like, friends who are like, oh, we need so-and-so. I was like, but is that number calculated? Like, have you actually sat to break it down? So I didn't break it down. So I picked a random number. I got an investor. Uh, and then I wanted to find a director that I felt was capable of doing the script justice with the small budget that we had. So it was a very niche group. So I came up with a list with my fellow producer of six people. So of those six people... Uh, who I thought were really, really talented, could work with the budget, do a good job, and then tell the script. Three of them, right off the bat, were like, I cannot do this unless you tone it down, basically. They all had different words for it. Basically, all they want to do is tone it down. They're like, I am uncomfortable with this. That needs to go. This is too much. It's too far. It's too extreme. That needs to go. And I was like, well, but that's kind of what I like about the script. So those three, in my opinion, were off like literally as soon as they came back and said I would only do it if you change this and this I was like cool this is not the movie that I want you to direct uh of the three remaining they all came back and said they were absolutely interested and when we che checked with them like hey do you have any issues with the content they were perfectly fine with it the one caveat was that they couldn't do our timeline so I want to say this was like the beginning of the year or maybe end of the one year and then we were trying to shoot in April but the script was written around mostly people that I had knew and had worked with. And one of the things that I love about being an actor is I get paid to go to sets, sit back and see other people work and do their job, some of which are doing it really well and some of who are not. And then what I try to do when I do my own movies is be like, oh, yeah, that sound guy was amazing on that set. And I loved his personality. I think he'll be a good fit. That actor loved him in that movie. Uh, he was really easy to work with. Let me hire him. So Truth or Dare was written for almost all of the actors, with the exception of the talk show host and John. Those are the only actors that the roles were not written for. So everybody else, I was pretty dead set on hiring. Unfortunately, getting everyone's schedules to align, and this was, again, we still had plenty of time, it was like well far out, just meant that when we looked at the other three directors who would tell the story, none of them could do it in that month. So then we push out and then we go out to the actors and be like, hey, when are you available next? So it meant that we would have had to delay it by like another year just to get all the people in, involved. Uh, and then one of the producers suggested I direct it because I was really close and I, I like knew how I wanted like the intestinal bottle right pull to be like shot. I was like, here's how we're going to do it. So like we're not actually putting you know a bottle inside of the vagina but we're gonna sell it <laughs> uh and the actor has to be comfortable with like the bottle getting real close to the vagina um so that being said uh that's how i came to direct it uh i had never really seriously considered directing a movie before mm -hmm. but i also had never really considered producing or writing either i just came up with this concept and was like why is nobody making this this is kind of how i want to do it and then I fell in love with, like, the script, quite frankly. To this day, it's still one of my favorite. To this day, Truth Dare 2, I think, is still super fucking fun. It's written. It's really, really a good, 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 clever script. Um, so for me, it was just sort of like a natural progression. And when I had more talented people than me telling me, no, this is what you should do, I was like, okay. So then I tried to find an actor who was my type. I wanted... In my mind, I always saw, like, the characters being, like, a really sort of, you know, Deb is this beautiful, exotic-looking brunette. Heather is, like, this beautiful girl next door. And my character is, like, blonde. So I really did want to have, like, a blonde or, like, maybe a redhead. The problem is trying to find quality actors that do indie film that would be okay with the extreme content um, that are, like, believably in their 20s uh, that work for low-budget rates was very hard. And I did have several names come up. And if you're thinking of any of the names that probably are coming up in your mind, if you're listening to this, I looked at all of their footage and I didn't like any of them as far as actors. I think that it's very possible to be working in low budget film and not be good at your job, but just to be so nice, so charming, or in the, the case of women, especially in front of the camera, you could just be so hot that people don't even notice that you're a shitty actor. Yeah. And I know women who, again, I love and adore, but I don't think they're good actors, objectively, 
if you take away the fact that they're super hot and they look great on camera, the performance isn't believable. And that was the most important thing to me. So because of that, um, there's a couple options that if we went up over the budget, um, like SAG rates, right? Which SAG rates start at like, I think 650 a day or something, but then we'd have to go SAG and I didn't want to go SAG. Um, so it kind of became like a big thing. <clears throat> so by fluke, I was forced, uh, there was no other good alternative other than me just acting and directing. Now, that being said, I hated doing both things. It's fucking a nightmare. <laughs> and also, side note, any, in my humble opinion, you cannot, here's the thing about being an actor on a film set, being a director, they're more, each job is more than a full-time job. And they all require a different part of your brain. I do not believe, aside, I think directors can do cameos really easily, like where they have like that moment. I think it, if you do it by choice, other than just by, you don't have, again, like money or whatnot, you have to be a narcissist. Like you have to just be so in love with seeing yourself on screen that yeah. it, you know, cause at the end of the day, you cannot tell me that the job of the director is weakened because now you're paying attention to in front of the camera and vice versa. I cut a lot of my performance cause quite frankly, I thought Heather's was better than mine. I thought Ray was better. So a lot of my performance ended up on the cutting room floor. But again, I I'd, like I could see when my head was not in it, but like also understand like as a director, you're focused on like, how is the audience receiving this? Like, are you getting these broad strokes? You know, is the intensity of the scene there? Uh, you know, the story arc is going over here, etc. versus as an actor, you don't focus on a story arc that has nothing to do with your job, right? Mm -hmm. You're focused on what does your character want? What is your character trying to get? which oftentimes, by the way, has nothing to do with like the intent. Like I, it doesn't matter if the audience, there is no audience. You're this character, yeah. right? Like it's not your fucking concern. Uh, so it's just a completely different mindset. And on independent films where you're like, go, 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 go. And trying to do so much being in front and behind this camera is just a nightmare in my opinion. And again, I definitely believe that it makes you weaker in both categories. So I don't advise it at all. I have done it twice. It's not been easy either time. And if or when I can afford the money to not do it again, I look forward to not doing it again. Uh, I am in Truth or Two, which I'm not looking forward to, but I'm in the first one, so I kind of have to do that. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like where I stand. It's just, it's very, very difficult. And I think most people, like I said, who are giving a realistic approach and not like, I'm the greatest thing ever. I could do everything. It's just fucking hard. But think about like how could you wash your car and drive it? Yeah. At the I'm, same time. I, I like, get that. It's almost like a, a micro view as an mm -hmm. actor and then like a big picture mm -hmm. view as a director and trying to juggle both those two seems extremely difficult. Correct. It's yeah. so different. And then also like understand like as a director, you're like focused on your lines and like how does your hair look, your makeup, is there continuity, are you comfortable? Versus like as a director, you're looking at like the camera angles and the overall view, like it does everything, you know, I don't really care if that actor's hair is out of place unless it's like obviously noticeable, but like to the actor, it probably it's a bigger deal, things like that. So it's just, it's just so different. It's so hard. I don't recommend it. I think it's a nightmare. Um, I did not star in my second movie, even though there's a beautiful blonde in it. Uh, and people are like, oh, you could have totally played that. I didn't want to. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to for that reason. But then also like with Mania, it became very, very hard and not starring in it also was a bit of a detriment because the actresses, the one was really bad uh, and difficult to work with. And the other one is a hobbyist. So you'll see in the documentary, Kill the PA, which hopefully will be finished this year, hopefully for release next year, you know, the actors are like, but anything more than six hours is inhumane. It's like, we told you we were going to be doing 12 hour days, which for the record, 12 hour days on independent film in America is common. Yeah. That is your industry ideal and standard going 14 to 16 hours is also very common. So six hours is just unrealistic. So not starring in mania and having to hire an actor who I felt uh, had to, just a hobbyist sort of mentality to be like, no, guys, we just shoot like six hours a day. And then if we don't get it, you just come back tomorrow. I was like, no, we actually have a schedule though. Like we can't, like, we have to get all this done today. We have to get all this done tomorrow, all this done the following day. Like we have to, you know, it's making a movie. It's not getting a couple friends together on a weekend to like possibly shoot some stuff. And if we don't get it done, we don't get it done. No problem. You know? Yeah. So there's a detriment to not being in it as well especially like i said low budget indie film you're limited to a very small group of actors and some get it and some don't and some are good and some aren't 
and then some are you know have other issues and that can complicate a shoot so there's not really an easy answer other than just do what's right for you yeah um talking about mania that that film had some of its own unique challenges in the fact that it's a kind of a three-part project and that mm-hmm. you were traveling in an rv with people and and so could you tell us some of those those unique challenges oh yeah the size of that <laughs> that was it was like the best worst idea ever right from a filmmaker standpoint in my opinion we had this idea where I was like, I wanted to make mania, which in my mind was always like a cross country road trip movie, Mm -hmm. but it's hard to do. And like, if you talk to like so many producers, like, no, you fake it. And I was like, I don't want to fake it as a viewer. I see that. And I see that you faked it. and I don't like it. So I want to travel cross country. So then I decided, well, if I'm driving across country with a cast and crew, I might as well make a movie on the way back. Right. Cause I have to, if I drive across country, I'm just going to get to my point. And then have to turn around and drive all the way back. So I might as well make another movie. And then my one of my mentors was like, that is insane. I low-key wish I could be there, but also I'm so glad I'm not there. But do me a favor and just film it. So he's like, everything's going to go wrong. It's going to be great. Uh, so then we decided to document it into a documentary called Kill the PA, which has since been turned into a 24-part, 30-minute episodic. Because wow. we just had 12 hours of like great, like we had a 12-hour cut. Where we're like, all of this should be here. This is great. But, That's like, there's awesome. no way you could trim it down to 90 minutes. Like, it's awesome, but, like, every 30 minutes, it's, like, we try to overcome three problems to, like, varying degrees of success or failure. <laughs> uh, so it's, like, also, like, it's almost PTSD. Like, me watching it, I'm like, oh, my God, I remember that. <laughs> it's not great. Uh, so the whole shoot was very challenging, you know. And the whole shoot was challenging, like I said. We had a couple actors involved who were more, like I said, hobbyists after, you know, Tristan, after two hours was difficult to work with um the other girl was very talented i think but after you know again like you'll see in the documentary being like you shouldn't work people more than six hours a day and i'm like well <laughs> I'm, i was very upfront and i told everyone in the beginning i was like we're trying not to go over 12 hours but there will be a couple 16 hour days um which there obviously are so but then there's also some really amazing people and there's some breathtaking moments like becca my dear friend in ohio who is one of the nicest women ever is so she's like the kindest sweetest human being but she plays an evil vindictive cannibal like better than anybody would ever suspect to the point where i'm like making me question everything and i've known her for like a decade (laughs) and i'm like oh my god like is this really like your secret self because like you're really good at this uh so there was like some really genuinely amazing moments and we had a lot of fun but it was incredibly stressful and you know you've got like the tricky thing is also with personalities when you're like living and working you have to understand how sometimes like uh different people's cope like drinking for example Mm -hmm. some people drink to to cope with stress well if you've got somebody on set and we definitely did have somebody who had an alcohol problem so where some people might have a couple drinks and then go to sleep it would cause our dp to just fucking want to get trashed and get one hour of sleep and then be really angry that he was so sleep deprived and blame the set, you know? And it's like, we had 12 hours between, you know, your dropping us off at the last location and like being able to go to sleep and our breakfast call. So like an hour before shooting. Uh, so there was like a 12 hour window, but like if you stay up and get drunk and then can't sleep cause you're trashed for 11 of the 12 hours, it's not our fault. Yeah. Right. And then it's like tricky because it's like, well, we can't tell these other two people who can have a drink or two not to have alcohol in the hotel rooms or on the bus because they have a right to have that drink. But then again, them having a drink causes the alcoholic to just want to chug the bottle. Right. So it's like this weird, this weird hybrid situation where you're like, it's there's no good solution or good answer other than just to try to keep everybody as much as possible on the same page. Juggling personalities. Juggling personalities. And like, again, like figuring out like, okay, so she has this problem. Let's hide this from him. (laughs) She has this problem. Let's hide that from her. (laughs) Like, what do we do? Uh, So a lot of like those kinds of issues. So it was definitely like, it was definitely a very, very challenging shoot. I think given, here's the thing. I think, if we had picked, if I had chosen, I knew all the people involved, but I didn't realize that, like, again, I didn't realize the alcoholic was an alcoholic. I didn't realize the drug addict was a drug addict. Um, I think if we didn't have people with, like, those major afflictions, it would have been a lot smoother. 
And I think that there would have been a lot more fun. Right? Yeah. So I do think go forward, I could do it with, like, just, you know, more professional people. Obviously pay them more money. Right. Because <laughs> anytime you're getting more professional, I have to pay them more money. Um, and then get people who, again, like, you know, literally just tell them, too, like, if you have a drinking problem, this is not the, you know, this is not going to be your shoot. If yeah. you have a drug problem, this is not going to be your shoot. Uh, things like that. But, like, it's tricky, right? Because, like, you work with people, and I've worked with uh, some of these people before, i would never seen that side of them, because, like, you go on a movie set and then you go home. So it's like, I'm not at that person's house to see, oh, you're drinking for 11 of the 12 hours between shooting. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Okay, that's a problem. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's a real problem. Like, you seem fine on the days that I was on set with you, but... Or, like, again, like, oh, your girlfriend doesn't let you have alcohol in the house because you drink too much of it. Okay, got you. So what happens when there's alcohol on a bus that you have access to? It's a problem. So, you know, you live and you learn. Yeah. I'm sure everyone just being in tight corners with each other, all those personalities would clash with each other over time. I think that definitely was part of it. We did our best. Like, keep in mind, uh, we had a house in Ohio. We had a house in Indiana that we stayed at. We had a house in Arizona. Mm -hmm. So, like probably for about half the shoot we actually weren't even on like staying on the bus at all like you could stay on the bus if you wanted to but like we had pretty comfortable accommodations like the ohio house is like a four bedroom finished basement right so like uh there was i think four three or four beds and then obviously we had a crew of 10 so right like not everyone's getting their own bed but like keep in mind like you know i was dating the producer at the time and like two of the actors were really close so they were sleeping in a bed and then we had air mattresses. So again, like there definitely were like some days that were more comfortable on the nights that we didn't have a house where we were traveling, we would get to hotel rooms and people got to divide up between like, there was like, uh, there was technically a pull-out sofa, the table bed, the queen bed, and then the above the seat bed. So there was four proper beds in the RV if they wanted them. And then we had usually four more beds in the hotel rooms. Uh, so that's kind of how we did it. So it definitely like, absolutely like certain things you know but again i think if you took the drugs and the drinking off the table if we didn't have those people with those afflictions and the results of having to deal with those afflictions i think it would have been a very different and much more enjoyable shoot if yeah. that makes sense um because again like even for me like I, the, the only thing that really bothered me again was like the the drug addicts and the alcohol like you know that was like the hardest part you yeah. know and that's what really pushed i think tempers you know and rightfully so, like, if you're only sleeping an hour a night, but again, if, if the production's giving you 12 or 14 hours between call times, yeah, that's up to you to be responsible with your time management, you know, to be a grown-up, just like every other person who has a job, you know? Well, that's good that you guys had, like, room to breathe at, at times, those houses mm -hmm. and that. Um, so going back to acting, um, in 2017, you starred in the American guinea pig film Song of Solomon, and uh, I just wanted to know how, how you got involved with that how did you meet Stephen Byro how did you find out about that project well so I ended up at Days of the Dead in Atlanta one year and I'd known Byro online we never met in person um, and I was asked to do a panel with a bunch of other filmmakers so Byro was late showing up to the panel so we were already sitting there was two sofas and then like this weird little horse statue in the center uh, so we, all of us were sitting there waiting for the, the panel to start and Byro walks up and he has like a bottle of some kind of alcohol in hand. I forget which one. Um, either way, he had a bottle of alcohol in his hand. was having a great time, apologized for being late and then realized there was nowhere for him to sit. So he sits on this horse in the center. So I'm at the one sofa closest to the horse. So he starts like making a couple jokes and I laugh cause it's fucking hilarious. And I introduce myself. I'm like, Hey, we haven't met, but we know each other online. Uh, and then during the panel, he like offers me some of his like straight out of the bottle liquor to which I obviously accepted. Uh, and I heard him speak on the panel and really respected what he had to say. Mm -hmm. He heard me speak on the panel, really respected what he wants to say. Uh, and that's kind of how we just became friends. And for the rest of that convention, cause that was like Friday. So like day one of the convention, um, we hung out a lot. We spent a lot of time together. Uh, I was at the other booth just chilling and relaxing uh, and I really liked and respected him and he had mentioned that he was working on this extreme exorcism movie and I had said you know I hadn't done an exorcism movie and I really wanted to it's a subgenre that I personally love that I'm personally a fan of and I'd be really honored to be involved uh, and he totally told me straight away that I was not a good fit for the part uh, and that I was wrong so uh, so I and I would sort of probe him and get to know and it turns out like he wanted a very like 
any kind of anywhere, you know, middle of nowhere young woman. He didn't want somebody that was like very overly made up or like, you know, uh, high maintenance, mm -hmm. so to speak. So keep in mind, like I'm at the convention, I have like my fake eyelashes on and my hair is done and I'm blonde and I'm wearing stilettos. And he was like, no, like this is a small town girl in an, you know, unnamed middle of nowhere city you know, wearing running shoes and jeans and a t-shirt, like no makeup, whatever. And I was like, I can be that. Like, I'm not that by my natural self, but like, I'm an actor. Mm -hmm. I can be that. And he was like, no, no, I also, I don't want blonde. And I was like, hair can be dyed. Like, <laughs> it'll be fine. He was like, no, I just don't really see it. Um, so we became friends from that. And a couple months later, when he was starting to do auditions, I was like, I still really, really want to audition. And I promise that it will not affect our friendship if I'm not cast. And for the record, that's what I ask all my friends. I was like, if I fit a role, like in the broadest terms, meaning like not hair color, but just like age, height, you know, Caucasian, mm -hmm. let me audition. That's it. If I'm not right for the role, keep in mind, I'm a lover of Indian horror film. So if there's somebody else who's better for the job, great. Hire them. Still going to see it. Still going to support you. Totally fine. Um, so I was able to convince him to let me audition for it under that, you know, requirement that I wouldn't hold it against him if I didn't get it. And then, uh, I actually got like black contact lenses. So I didn't spend like crazy money on like hand painted ones or anything, but I've got like black contact lenses and stuff. So I wore them for the audition that we did by Skype and I worked really, really hard on it. Uh, and I think it was pretty good. And because of the audition, he cast me. That's awesome. So, but then it was required. He was like, you can't, like, I don't want you, like, insisting on wearing makeup or, like, mascara. Like, this isn't the thing. Like, when we do your makeup, like, you're going to be unattractive. And I was like, I am so cool with being unattractive. <laughs> I don't fucking care. Like, don't get me wrong. I don't want to, like, go to a convention as Jessica Cameron and have people be like, oh, wow, she's really unattractive. But, like, in a movie, I all bets are off. I agree. Like, I feel like this character gets really unattractive. Uh, and having mascara on a demon is just fucking dumb for the most part. Like, yeah. no. <laughs> Uh, so I'm like, I don't care about that. Like, doesn't bother me at all. And he asked me to like dye the hair. So I did. Cause he, in her, in his mind, she was a brunette. So I dyed my hair and yeah, uh, not too long after that, we went to go shoot it. Awesome. Yeah. Um, well, we'll get into the practical effects in a second, but I wanted to just ask, um, that role of, uh, in that film really shows your acting abilities, especially with the fact that you had to memorize so much Latin and and all of that. So what were some of the challenges in terms of being an actor with with basically how demanding and how much dialogue that film had? Well, definitely. So I am not, I actually typically turn down any role that requires an accent mm -hmm. or like any kind of other language because I'm not great with languages. It's just not a strong suit. Never has been. You know, I grew up in Canada. We are forced to learn French. It's never come naturally to me. Um, so certainly the Latin was a challenge. Also the Bible phrases. I'm never... For most characters, as a director and as an actor, I'm never really focused that much on, like, if it's word for word perfect, mm -hmm. right? Because I think, like, the emotion and the intent, if, you know, you might be like, the sky is blue today, or the sky is blue today, you know, the mm -hmm. difference of an apostrophe and the word is versus an apostrophe s is interchangeable, but it's not when you get to Bible phrases or, like, a demon throwing these Bible phrases back in the face of priests. Like, you have to be letter perfect in my humble opinion. So that was also really stressful because again, it just had to be perfect to the apostrophe. Mm -hmm. Um, because again, otherwise I felt like it couldn't be sold so that the dialogue, the Latin was certainly a challenge. Um, the physical aspects we talked off camera or off audio about like the contact lenses, contact lenses were tricky because they didn't, they weren't advised to buy weighted contacts. So they kept on circulating, which meant, for like all of the eyes, like their shots, I had to be corrected in post because the contact is going around in a circle. Mm -hmm. um, and then on top of that, like there was like times like where my hands were so disgusting and covered in gore and gunk that like Biro would have to go wash his hands to like rotate the contact lens, right? So you've got somebody else putting their finger literally in your eye. <laughs> so, I mean, that was uncomfortable. And then the bed, the first day or two, we used like a super soft cushiony bed. And I was like, oh, this is great. And then they brought in like this bed that Jeremy Cruz had designed so that it could like fall apart and it could move. So it was actually very uncomfortable because again, you're just like literally on wood for like 14 hours a day to think about like being on wood. It actually is more uncomfortable than you would think. Uh, but then the tricky part of that, because they dismantled the bed, brought it in and then put it back together again in the room, 
all of the little wood fibers, which you don't realize, get sucked towards your contact lenses. So for about two days, every time I'd blink, it felt like little razor blades on my eyes. And I have a really high pain tolerance. So normally things like that don't bother me, but this was so painful. At one point, like the one contact just fell out and I couldn't get it back in. And I was like, well, we're sh we've been shooting 14 hours today. It looks like we're gonna have to call it because my contact lens has literally decided it's not staying in my eye and I can't get it back in again. And it's so painful right now. Did you have multiple of the same lenses? No, no we did not. High risk. Uh, we only had, because they were hand painted and not cheap, they were able to get like one of each, because I have three different sets in the film that are all very different, um, and they only had one of each, so we had to be careful. But keep in mind also, like hand painted, they're a heavier, thicker one than like, because I wear contacts normally. Mm -hmm. um, so I was very concerned. I was like, what if I rip it? What if I do something? But then the first time I went to go put them in my eye, I'm like, okay, the chance of me ripping it is slim to none because this is like super durable. Yeah. But also, like, that thick thing is now in your eye. Wow. Yeah, so that was hard. And then, uh, the, just, just, you know, staying, say, I would, like, literally, uh, always have, like, a, when they were, like, trying to do camera blocking and stuff, I'd have, like, the script in line, because, again, I'm, like, trying to get the Latin and the dialogue down, and on more than one occasion, I would, like, realize that, like, I heard nothing around me, I had, like... There was all this commotion before where people were like setting up lights and sound and and the effects and all that and then i would like put the script down and be like hello guys and it turns out like i guess somebody inside they're gonna have a smoke so somebody else decided they were going to have a smoke so then before you know it, they're all outside smoking and i'm like tied to the bed <laughs> i'm like guys you just like forgot about me here because i'm like being quiet <laughs> like and they'd be gone for like five or ten minutes so at the time there was like, I was Instagramming and, and sharing on social media, like me literally singing like all by myself, <laughs> like in demon form, uh, because I'm literally like tied to this bed alone. The people forgot me while they oh went outside gosh. for a cigarette. So it was pretty comical. Well, speaking about kind of the physical demanding stuff, um, there's a lot of intense things that you had to do in this film, throwing up your intestines and eating them again, giving birth to a child. Um, what were some of the the most memorable challenges within all of those physical demands that you had to do? Uh, the intestine was a fun one. Um, I knew like originally, cause I've done a couple vomit scenes before. Um, and I know like, first of all, if you haven't done one, like the likelihood that you're going to vomit for real, at least in part is high for me anyways. Cause like when you make those like retching sounds and like actually feeling it in the moment, like you just naturally do vomit. So I had like wrote up my script too. I was like, don't eat that day. Because, uh, again, like, I was trying to, like, limit, limit the amount of vomit. <laughs> um, so that was tricky. And then they were, like, figuring out how they, how they were going to do it. And I was like, let me just, let's, like, set it up. And then I want to roll the camera because I don't want to do this. Because, again, it's not comfortable. It doesn't feel good. Mm -hmm. I was like, let me just see how much I can shove down my throat. And let's just see about me doing it. Right? Like, let's just give it a whirl. Yeah. See if it looks good. But I was like, for heaven's sake... Unless it's like a technical issue, don't call cut. Because if you call cut because you think I'm in pain, because again, it's not going to be, it's not a comfortable situation to be in, right? So if I look like I'm uncomfortable because I fucking am, uh, but I'll be really pissed if I'm like very uncomfortable and dealing with it and then you call cut and we just have to do it again. So I was like, let me call cut. So Byro agreed to that and that's what we did. So I just literally was like, I'm just going to shove as much down my fucking throat as I can and then I'm going to vomit it up. And then I'm going to shrub it back down. Then I'm going to vomit it up again. <laughs> um, and that's what we did. And we did it twice. And then Byron was like, yeah, we got it. <laughs> like, it's good. I was like, thank God. Because, uh, again, it was like I was really vomiting and it was very gross. But, I mean, you know, you suffer for the art. So that was hard. Um, the birthing scene wasn't... It was... It wasn't as difficult but also like it's not as invasive mm -hmm. like the vomit scene like there's very much an element like when you're shoving massive amounts of rubber intestines down your mouth and throat that it does feel like there's like a physical invasiveness mm -hmm. which i think works really well in that moment because like the character keep in mind like at some point like there is a little bit of that struggle between like mary and the demon mm -hmm. right where the demon doesn't care that it's uncomfortable or painful but there's still a person in there the yeah. person still like being a vessel but still so for me that was definitely the much harder of those two specifically although the bed like again it wasn't you know jeremy cruz did a good job about making it as comfortable as he could 
But I mean, it's not comfortable to be like stuck on like a rock hard bed with like your one arm load lowered with like the fake arm up, and then you like drop your like left leg down, but your like right leg still up, and your like left arm is still up, and you know, yeah, none of it's easy or comfortable. Um, and then the sex scene with the priest was that difficult to shoot, or was <laughs> that just mostly your head in a dummy? Body? That was mostly a puppet like sad but true that's mostly a puppet unfortunately uh but i mean i've done a lot of sex scenes before so as long as like the crew and the cast is our professional it's not really that big of a deal to me you know um it's still i really like that scene in the movie i think it's really fun and also spoilers (laughs) this interview (laughs) side note uh so no it wasn't hard at all and also like by that point too that was towards the end of the shoot and i knew david enough where i felt very comfortable and i was like well this is gonna be fun (laughs) yeah so um, there's some talk, uh, like talking with Byro and stuff about some, some scenes that didn't make it into the film. And one of them was, uh, you with bloody footprints or footsteps running up to a church and ringing the doorbell. And, uh, I, I wanted to hear your take on that whole situation that happened. Uh, on which part? The fact that it didn't that you, make it like, into the film like, you, you ran up to ring the doorbell yeah. of the church, but the church wasn't aware that you were doing that? Yeah. Well, independent filmmaking. <laughs> like, right in the middle of Florida. We're like, let's just see where this goes. Uh, yeah, so we had it. And so here's the thing about Florida, is it does rain every single day. Like, at least where we were, every day you got a, a storm from somewhere between 3 and 5 or 2 and 4. Um, so when we were doing this, I was like, okay, the reality of the matter is the rain's going to come and wash these bloody footprints away. So it's not like in Hollywood where, like, those footprints would be there for, like, four months. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So I didn't feel bad about that. Um, I was... I'm a big fan of, like, you've got to do what you have to for the art. Um, so we did it totally... And, it, like, I didn't think that you'd get them to ever approve, you know, small town, middle Florida. It would be a big discussion and a lot more time than we had to get the shots that we needed. Mm-hmm. So I thought the shot looked really, really cool. It just didn't really have a place in the movie, unfortunately. Well, talking about um, some of the your current work that you're working on, you directed an ending, you uh, were working on Lilith, and then you are also have the film you're working on, Sunday Night Slaughter, and uh, we were talking before this, talking about um, kind of your YouTube channels that you have and all of that stuff. What can you tell us um, what we can expect coming from you soon, or that you're working on right now? Well, right now we're in final stages of post on an ending, so I'm really excited for that. I don't really have, like, an ETA. It's tricky, right, because I like to do the festival circuit, so it's a matter of getting it finished to my level of standards and then pushing it to festival. So hopefully early 2020 you'll start seeing an ending. And then with Mania, it's been signed with a distributor for over a year. They're a great company, so my hope is that they release it. Mm-hmm. The tricky thing about independent films is that when you sign with a distributor, you give them the rights to the movie, you're kind of just now on their timeline and their schedule and the bigger the better the company typically the less important that small independent film is to them Mm -hmm. you know like it's more about like fitting into their like bigger picture so we're waiting on that lilith is in final stages of post i just have to uh finish a few other things so i'm really excited for that uh scream queen stream is the youtube show that i run that's all indie all horror we do a youtube that's sponsored by our patreon so you can definitely check that out uh, so every week I focus on trying to release at least two or more videos all focused on Indian horror. So we do everything from filmmaker interviews with people I know and love that I feel like you should know too, like, you know, people that just work their ass off in the Indian horror world. Um, we do hot tub horror movie review, which is just like me and some of my friends hanging out in a hot tub talking about a movie. Um, and I try to focus on like a lot of the classics and also a lot of the indie content that I feel like might get missed. Mm-hmm. So I'm very passionate about that. And then some of the other movies that I have coming up as an actor, I'm not sure what Ed's, Ed Payson, the director of Sunday Night Slaughter, is planning with that one, but it was a fun little role. I have a very small role in it, but a really fun group of people, and Corey Feldman is a trip. <laughs> so stay tuned, obviously. Ed does do festivals typically with his movies, so I would assume that's probably the direction it's going, but I'm not positive. And then there's some other films coming out. The Tombs, which is a movie that I shot in London, England which I'm really excited for. It was the first film to ever shoot in the London Tower Bridge. And they have like this whole tomb exhibit down below, which is where we shot. So it was one of the coolest experiences. That sounds awesome. Yeah, not also too, because like A, the the people that I was working with were amazing. But then add to that as well, 
that you also get to be in London for two weeks, three weeks, or something like that, right? Yeah. There's worse places to be. <laughs> and I was, like, within a short walking distance to, like, the, the Tower Bridge. So I was very, 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 very central. And they gave me this, like, amazing uh, penthouse where I had, like, a huge space of to myself where I felt really bad because a lot of the... Because London is not dislike... Not unlike L.A. in the fact that some people live really far out because it's very expensive to live centrally. So some of these wonderful crew had like a two hour train ride each way, you know, which is funny, like, cause they don't complain about it. Like people do here in like LA, especially like <laughs> LA, if somebody has to drive 30 minutes, you're going to hear about it five times. But in London, like these people will be on a two hour train ride and you don't even know for weeks. Cause like it's, they just accept it and you know, don't want to make a big deal of it. So at one point I literally was like, you should just stay at my, my penthouse. It's like, I have so much room. I have two pull out sofas. Uh, and I think I kind of creeped them out a little bit because they're like, who is this random American chick trying to get us to stay at her? And I was like, no, I just, I have room and I'm like right around the corner and you could save four hours. It'll be great. Anyways, uh, so the tubes hopefully will be coming out, starting to play festivals soon. Uh, and then there's a bunch of other projects if you look on IMDb where I try to keep up with all of them. If you follow me on social, I'm active on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. I promote a lot of them um, and discuss what I find out about them. As an actor... I have less say, obviously. I don't even always know, depending upon how good the marketing team is on the movie, what's coming out or where. As a filmmaker, I have more say in control, so I definitely make sure to list on my social what's coming down the pipe. Awesome. Well, it was nice talking with you. Likewise. Thank you so very much for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Uneasy Terrain Explorers Club. If you're interested in checking out my other work, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, Cinema's Underbelly, where I analyze and review obscure obscene, and controversial cinema, as well as check out my label, Putrid Productions. Until next time, this is the Uneasy Terrain Explorers Club. <laughs>